0: Hello, and welcome to the Freightvine Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Ari Ash, Senior Editor at the Journal of Commerce. Ari has more than a decade of journalism experience covering all aspects of transportation, from commuting to work, as well as freight. He joined the Journal of Commerce in 2018, where he covers and provides valuable insight on intermodal transportation, trucking, and ports. In our discussion, We talk about the state of the intermodal and trucking transportation markets and how shipping patterns between East Coast and West Coast ports have changed during the pandemic and whether they will stay that way. Ari also explains the challenges surrounding the management of container chassis and tells us why he did not continue his career as a play-by-play announcer for a single-A baseball team. Following our conversation, I'll be joined by Dr. Inami Yu to discuss the truckload market update. So, let's get started. Hi Ari, welcome to the Freight Vine Podcast. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a while. I, I, I don't know why I didn't have you on earlier. You, yeah, I read all your stuff in the Journal of Commerce, but I'm so glad you've been able to take some time to join me today. And uh, so, let's. The big question is: You've been covering transportation for a little over a decade from a variety of formats—print, radio. What do you see as the big differences and similarities between covering transportation in print? what you do for Journal of Commerce and what you did for Transport Topics versus radio?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest difference is the depth that you get into any specific issue. Um, Our Twitter culture has been the way radio has been for a long time, Mm -hmm. well before Twitter ever existed. And so I worked at a place where your story was supposed to be 35 seconds of audio, maybe 40 seconds of audio that's like writing it, that'd be equivalent to writing a story of like 120 words on anything. Um, you don't really get in depth, you, you, you've learned about the issues, but you can't communicate the depth of the issue in in the radio format, unless you work at a longer form place like NPR. And, right. and you know, but general news, you don't get that. It's completely different in the in the digital world. Um, you know, you can write an 800 word article, and while it won't get to everything you get a lot more than an inch deep on any particular issue you get several inches
0: deep yeah it also lives longer right i mean i guess i don't know do they archive any of the radio things that are getting done like twitter you are saying that's that lives forever it's like diamonds right they never go away as much as you want them to go away but articles also they have a longer shelf life don't they
1: they do um radio stations in general do keep files of their history yeah um it's not shared with the outside yeah. world in the same way that the you know print articles are. But if you were you know any big radio station would say you know can you pull me something from five years ago? They have it on file somewhere.
0: Yeah, but not shared. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So did your experience in radio because that's kind of where you started off for the yeah. most part? Has that helped you covering uh, freight transportation in print?
1: I would say yes and no. There were some transitions. Um, yeah, I would say certainly it helped at the very beginning as. You know my job covering commuter transportation uh, here in Washington D.C., where I'm located, uh, covered not only the local transit system and and highway system, but the federal government. So I already had experience covering the USDOT on okay. the commuter side. So that was very familiar to me when I moved over to freight, working with the USDOT on on stuff. I knew how it worked uh very different though in the sense that there's a lot more and i like this a lot more economics to the supply chain whereas whereas commuter transportation was all about how do i get to and from work and with as much as little traffic as possible and solve all the little problems where traffic's a big problem there was no economic component
0: yeah that's funny did anyone blame you for the traffic because you're the guy doing it did you get like hate mail or anything
1: no, the government's got it. But I think quite often I would get uh, emails from folks saying, can you can you fix the traffic on Interstate 95 or right. the Capitol Beltway in Washington, D.C.? Well, I have nothing I could do. I know it's bad.
0: You were able to do, of course, of course. Um, but now you do some radio now, though. You're, you do some stuff on Sirius XM with, with Road Dog. How, is that filling that niche that you wanted to do with, uh, with what, what you were doing before?
1: It is. Um, I'm not unhappy that I got out of radio. There's a lot of challenges to working a life as a uh, TV or radio journalist, but that doesn't mean I don't love radio. I, right. I, I went into it for a reason. I was in it for 10 years for a reason. Mm-hmm. I still love it. I just didn't lot, like sort of the lifestyle around it, what it meant for my family and, and my overall health. But this allows me to be on radio. Yeah still and talk about supply chain issues and and scratch that itch and it's great being on the specific program i'm on because the host there mark willis is a guy i've known for a long time who you know you talked about my days covering commuter transportation he and i were um i guess raised if this is the right word or nurtured by the same program director oh really uh, in our history and so we have a shared um shared history that connected us to the same sort of inspirational leader at the beginning of our careers. That's interesting.
0: And now, now, do you have a radio voice that you use? Like, you know, you listen to late night radio and you've got that deep voice. Do you have anything or do you just go with your normal voice for your traffic stuff?
1: I My answer would be no, but my wife's answer would be yes.
0: Oh, really?
1: Because, you know, I'd say, this is Ari Ash. And, and, you know, for, for a specific type of story where you put two stories back to back that were alike. So you link one story to the other. And so whenever she'd want to tease me, she'd, she'd say it in the way that that's- I said it. I mean, I look at it and I'm like, I don't hear any difference. But she definitely noticed a radio voice. Oh, that's funny. And voice. Funny. The voice.
0: The wives can always tell. They can always tell. Well, let's get into some of the stuff that you cover. And so I want to talk about intermodal. That's, that's your main bailiwick. I know you do ports, you do trucking and everything, but let's talk intermodal. And what shocked me is that um, demand for intermodal was flat um, in 2022, especially Q4. There's been a lot of stuff very recently about how uh, retail sales went down and, you know, did, did the peak season even happen? What do you think's going on?
1: So you're 100% right. I recently wrote up a story about jb hunts earnings and mm-hmm. we took a look at the intermodal association of north america's domestic intermodal number comparing june to october that's supposed to be the peak season of intermodal it's supposed right. to grow during that five month period or four four month period um and it was up like roughly 14 percent in 2020 over that period it was up Five plus percent in twenty twenty-one and then last year, you know, in twenty-two, it was up like six hundredths of one percent, like virtually nothing. Frankly, if you look at it on a on a per workday basis, it peaked in, in March. It did not peak in October. For whatever reason, it peaked in March. Um my answer to the question of why that happened, um, I think you have to split it between international and domestic, which you know is they're two very different worlds. In the international, when we're talking about 20 and 40-foot length equipment, you know that was really a result of, of A, imports slowing down, but B, I think a continued frustration on the part of shippers that the rail network to move 20s and 40s and the chassis and all of the things that go with it just had been so unreliable for a good 18-month period that I think they were just tired of it and decided other options. On the domestic side, I think it just slowed down because truck rates got so competitive and are still so competitive on a lot of these local lanes that I think shippers again push some of that stuff over to trucking so they didn't have to deal with the the hassles of of using a train. Yeah, we we've,
0: we've seen that here at DAT IQ that there seems to be more hesitancy from shippers to use intermodal. Um, do you think anything else is causing this or when do you Do you see that abating at any time
1: soon? I think shippers are rightly skeptical. Uh, J.B. Hunt's president of Intermodal, Darren Field, said it very well, where he said there's going to be a lag time between service metrics looking better and shippers gaining that confidence. And they, in his opinion, are still in that phase of saying, hey, J.B. Hunt. Hey, BNSF Railway. We still need you to prove it over a sustained period of time before we buy in and, and bring it, uh, bring that those loads back from trucking over to rail. What I would just say in addition to that is um, Norfolk Southern. I think said it very very well on an earning um, uh, investor day, it was a couple months ago, and their CEO essentially said rail service and wasn't just talking intermodal, all types of rail service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our struggle at once every three years, we just really, really struggle and service just is not acceptable. And what we need to do is we need to be students of history and learn from this and get out of that cycle of having a bad year once every three years, because if that continues, shippers are just simply not going to put more than the bare minimum necessary on rail if, if it's going to fail and fall flat on its face once every three years.
0: Do you think that's a memory thing? Up here at uh, MIT, we wrote a paper um, a couple of years ago um, called Elephants or Goldfish. And the whole idea was our our carriers, elephants, they have a long memory of how they're treated or goldfish. They have no memory. uh, they do, And we kind of discovered that uh, carriers really have no memory when they look at how they were treated during a a soft market and how they treat those shippers during the tight market. Do you think it's a memory issue or do you think this service cycle of every three years due to just the macroeconomic factors? Demand gets
1: tight. It's a good question, and I think it's a little bit of both. Um, certainly, just from a business perspective, I can understand that when periods of economic activity go down, downturn in the economy or recession, right? You, no matter what industry you're in, you either slash jobs or you right size or you you trim your expenses where you can to get through the lean times. And then times get good and you hire up again and you staff up again and and spend more on expenses because you're getting that revenue flowing through the door. Railroads are, are historically, unfortunately, no different. Furloughing engineers and conductors and other frontline jobs during weaker economic times. and that. But the problem is you just can't flip a switch and then have that, instantly turn around when the times pick up and have that service become good, which is why you have that experience once every three years. I don't know if Norfolk Southern will get there, but I liked their thinking and idea that to get out of this cycle, we need to stop overreacting to downturns in the economy and cut so much that we don't have the flexibility to turn that switch on so quickly once conditions get better
0: that's so hard and that's not just railroads i'm thinking of delta right they they furloughed a ton of pilots right in the beginning of the pandemic because whenever you have a downturn um you don't know is it going to be a month is it going to be a year you know how long is that going to be it's a very hard temptation not to react immediately especially i would imagine for publicly traded companies where you're being graded right away
1: and and i would also add on top of that and i don't mean this in a negative way towards people or, or to dehumanize people. This is not my intent one. what I'm about to say. But anytime a market is goes to a downturn, we say, oh my God, we've got all of these assets that We bought when times are really good because we we didn't want to have our competitors grow bigger than our company grew. So we spent to bring in the assets to maximize our revenue. But now the economy's turned and we have all these assets that we don't know what to do with, whether that asset is a worker, uh, a truck, a trailer, uh, shoes, a shirt, a computer, whatever it may be. We have to figure out a way to shed that excess, essentially inventory, whether it be selling that shirt at a discount or that shoe at a discount, or that computer at a discount, put that truck on the used truck market, whatever it may be, we need to shed that excess inventory so that we're ready for the next cycle. That's no different than what's going on going on in any of the transportation sectors.
0: Yeah. And a lot of times people have a recency bias. And I see this all the time with shippers where they think when the market's really good for them, a really soft market, it's going to go on forever. And then when the market's tight, you know, that's going to go on forever. And so getting people to realize the cycle, I, I'm the opinion, the cycles will not go away. As long as humans are involved. Um, once the robots take over, right. With chat GPT and they can run everything for us until that happens, humans are going to overestimate and underestimate. So something to live with.
1: The only thing I would add to that, Chris, is that, um, I think the drive of competition mm. is a good and bad thing. Good because it obviously allows us to innovate and compete against right. one another for the best products. But bad in the sense that we're so hyper-focused in the business world of how did I do in this category compared to my competitors? And, and if I grew at 5% during this economic boon, but my competitors grew at 7%, I did something wrong or I'm bad in some way. Or, in the, or on the flip side, our losses in a bad time, we were down 4% uh, and our competitors were only down 2%. So I'm bad in some sort of way. And the fact that we assign those sort of values to that competition, I think, causes us to buy more than we need to as companies, inventory in high cycles, and yeah. then shed as much shed more than the necessary inventory on the downside.
0: Yeah, that, that's really interesting. It reminds you, there's a great quote by Teddy Roosevelt uh, that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And it usually applies to comparing like your salary to someone up appears, you never wanna do that, right? But also what I find interesting, it's, I agree with what you're saying, but we're all competing for the same investment dollars, right? And so n- naturally an investor is gonna look at who is doing more. So it's not how fast you run, it's if you can run faster from the bear than the next guy. Right. And so it's it's a challenge, but I agree it, it might raise some other challenges for it. But let me ask another question about why shippers might be hesitant to for intermodal or rail. The rail strike, the threat of a rail strike this fall. Do you think that's that was a big issue early in the fall? Do you think that's still lingering with a lot of shippers?
1: I think, yeah, so it t- definitely hurt early in the fall. There were a number of shippers who either moved stuff to outside trucking companies in in the days leading up to the threat last September. Or JB Hunt, you know, and Hub and Schneider who have their own trucking mm-hmm. divisions, took those intermodal loads and just stuck them on a on a tractor and kept it within their, their family of companies. Um I think that the shipper at this point is in a wait and see mode to see what hiring will look like over the next six months at the railroads, because they all said we need to hire up. We don't have enough employees to move the train. The service is suffering because we're not staffed up properly, which is partially their own fault. If the economy is doing what it's doing and we have a freight recession right now, as J.B. Hunt came out and said on their fourth quarter earnings call um, a couple of days ago, um then you know are they going to hire more people the railroads in the next six months are they going to start to furlough some of the people they just hired what's their employment strategy over the next six months i think shippers will be very curious to see what's happening there and make decisions of the commitment of the railroad to their service product based on what that looks like over the next six months
0: railroads have such a long historical tale of of all the different things you know 100 plus year old company industry there are not too many of them out there. And so the work rules and everything are so challenging to work. I have some friends who work in the railroad and it's just an ongoing challenge how to staff that. Um, But let me ask a question. You raised uh, the point when you talk about intermodal, you always talk about truckload. Um, And so as a shipper, they typically make that trade off. And a lot of times they'll run an annual bid where they'll include truckload with intermodal because they want to make that trade off, maybe secure both for have flexibility in real time. you guys, JOC produces a monthly or is it quarterly report that talks about intermodal savings versus that? Can you tell me more about that?
1: We calculate it monthly and then we put out a report quarterly.
0: Tell tell me more tell us more about that.
1: So what I do in this index is I start from a very basic premise. I'm a shipper. I have something I can move in a 53-foot piece of equipment. What type of cost savings would I get by sticking that in to a container? whether it be J.B. Hunt or Hub or Schneider or UMAX or an EMP container versus sticking that over the road mm-hmm. on, a, on a tractor trailer. And so I take 120 lanes across the United States and we pull four data points consistently throughout the month. The truckload contract rate, the truckload spot rate, the intermodal spot rate and the intermodal contract rate from the perspective of the shipper, not what's paid to the driver, but what the shipper pays. And we run comps every single month on all 120 lanes. And then we base an index off of the results of those 120 lanes and then share that information, produce a report, do all sorts of analysis to inform the public about where intermodal really will save you a lot of money, but where it really won't and maybe not really be worth using intermodal
0: got it and now what about um one of the things when i talk to shippers? one of the reasons they use intermodal cost certainly is one of them but the sustainability impact because uh, there's been more of a pressure from sea level to push down in you know scope one through three uh, emissions trying to reduce the emissions that they're producing and of course intermodal is much more um environmentally friendly than trucking. Does that come out at all? Or do you see
1: any of that having an impact or is it all cost? I speak to intermodal shippers a lot. Uh, I mean, I probably speak to two or three a week. And I think the consistent theme, although you can't, you know, paint every shipper with one stroke, so this is sort of a generalization, sure, sure. is that companies definitely care about the E and ESG, but not necessarily at the expense of profits or at the expense of um, reliable service and having the inventory where it needs to be. So I think environmental concerns are important, but I don't think in any way it supersedes the more important requirements of saving significant amount of money off of the over the road option and a service that is at least somewhat reliable.
0: That, that that makes sense. I think it's uh, transportation as a lucky coincidence that, uh, generally saving money saves, lowers emissions. It just, it just does, right? And so it, it, it seems like a follow-on effect where people can claim credit, but in fact, they're doing it to save money. That makes sense. Let me flip to uh, ports, if that's okay, because you have something else you cover. And we noticed during the pandemic, there was a general shift and it picked up towards the end from West to East Coast ports and Gulf ports. Um, I read recently that uh, LA Long Beach dropped 6.5% and uh, 2.5% respectively from 21 volumes, and Savannah and Houston increased by 2% roughly, and Houston increased by 20% in the volume. What's going on? How is this shift happening? Why is it happening?
1: So I think it's a multi-prong effect. I think the first wave of the shift to the Gulf and East Coast ports was the response to the 100 plus vessels that were anchored outside LA Long Beach. Then the second wave of people going to the Gulf and East coast was a response to the labor situation. That's still not so with the ILW union labor and the management representing West coast ports and, and back to your earlier point of memories of an elephant versus a goldfish in this area, they do have many of them memories of an elephant and remember yep. exactly what happened back in 2014 Uh, with the last time we went through this major issue and the massive disruption that it caused. And so that shifted stuff to the U.S. East Coast. And then I think we're seeing a third wave now, which is that to the extent that a lot of these companies are needing to, as J.B. Hunt put it, get through an inventory correction that will take six to nine months, they don't necessarily need that shortest transit Uh from Shanghai to the West Coast. They actually don't mind that extra 27 to 30 days to get through the Panama Canal into the Gulf or East Coast ports because it buys them a time to correct that inventory situation before new stuff comes in.
0: So do you think this is a short-term blip in reaction to some of these things? or Do you think it's a long-term strategy to have more Gulf and West Coast?
1: Now we get back to goldfish and elephant, and I guess <laughs> in this area we're goldfish – because at the end of the day, it is the shortest, LA Long Beach is the shortest, way, shortest time frame to get it from Asia to the United States. Unfortunately, it's the, it's the one keyhole that everybody goes to in times of emergency. And we don't seem to learn our lesson the first 15 times we get it wrong. And I don't think we'll learn it the 16th time, unfortunately, again, about that. But eventually we're going to get to a place where speed to market will again be a concern and we need to get as much inventory as we can as quickly as we can because the economy is picking up again. And in that competition, it will come back to L.A. It will come back to Long Beach because it is the quicker way to get stuff into the U.S.
0: But it's not quicker to get to all points in the U.S. The East Coast, there's a line, right? And I don't know where it is now. I know when the the Panama Canal expanded, that line moved westward a little where it's equidistant as far as cost to get to that point, but also for some of the major markets on the East Coast, it's not dramatically different because if you come in through LA, Long Beach, you've got to come across the country and you know, you're hitting through either intermodal, you're going through Chicago, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there might be a better way. Do you think that has an impact?
1: Yeah, so I would say, yeah, so, so it depends on what your inland location is. Obviously, right. any place is not served by the East Coast Railroads, you would keep it on the West Coast. If you were to draw that line, I think you... You know, you kind of move it between sort of you were to draw a line from Chicago all the way down to like New Orleans. Like Uh that's probably the line I would draw in my head where you're probably close at that point. And obviously any points west of that line would be would be something you more likely want to move through the West Coast and anything East, more likely through the East Coast. I think if you're right on that line. You're probably still maybe a day or two, maybe three or four quicker through the West Coast. But given all the delays that we saw moving stuff out of the West Coast ports over the last two years with PNSF and UP, that has also changed the equation quite a bit and may tip it in favor of East Coast Railroads. But that's sort of the the map in my head I would draw.
0: Yeah. And the East Coast Railroads, I mean, the last time that we had majority containers coming in from the East Coast was early 80s. 82, 83, it flipped once China opened up. And it doesn't seem like they're all ready for it. The infrastructure doesn't seem to quite be there yet. Do you think it's coming along or what do you think about that?
1: I think in, if it's to the East Coast ports, you really have to consider the highway infrastructure more than anything else. Um, while the Port of Savannah and Port of Virginia and other ports are certainly doing efforts to grow their intermodal book of business to move stuff inland there's always going to be more stuff moving from the ports into inland markets on trucks out of the East Coast ports than the West Coast ports, whether that's a drainage truck or it's transloaded and then put into an over-the-road, long-haul vehicle. You think it was like a Savannah is a good example of that. Right. Savannah is right on Interstate 95. So, you know, you can send it inland on intermodal, but you're so close to the key interstate's there that you can transload that and then stick it over the road and get it on the highway very easy and it's pretty much a straight shot you know depending on the interstate you're using to your inland location and it makes makes it very competitive against the rail option so I don't I don't think in the long run you'll ever see that type of modal share that the West Coast ports get where a lot of it goes out on rail. Right, I don't think right. you ever see that on the East Coast.
0: Yeah. I don't know too many East Coast ports. I'm ignorant here. Have rail on the, on the dock.
1: Port of New York, New Jersey on dock. Um, Port of Virginia on dock. I'm just kind of going through them in my head. Port of Savannah on dock. Uh, and I believe the rest are off dock. Charleston's off dock. If you come in on the east
0: coast you're probably serving your markets are no more than 500 600 miles away yeah so maybe getting on rail because it, it makes sense as intermodal as the length of haul gets shorter intermodal becomes less competitive right i don't know yeah. where it becomes yeah. the real break even over a thousand miles
1: i think that's probably somewhere in that's yeah a thousand's probably right so i'm thinking you know of something sent in the port of New York, New Jersey and it has to go to Ohio or to Chicago. You know, you'll, you'll probably save a little bit on using the rail option, but you know, depending on the transloading cost sure. but at the end of the day, it's not that much. It's 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 pretty close.
0: So for transloading, you're talking about ripping them from TEUs and FEUs into 53 foot
1: containers yeah i mean in that so in that situation you could either it probably from a cost perspective fairly equal. you could either just dray it intact in the 20 and 40 right ocean containers and dray it all the way to ohio or to chicago or yeah you could take it to a transload facility strip it and stick it in a long haul truck i guess the price is roughly the same
0: yeah so one of the things that is a black box to me and maybe to some of our listeners i think too is the whole idea of container chassis and why this is such a problem. And, you know, it sounds like uh, this country struggling with this. Can you explain what some of the root causes are? Who owns the chassis? What's, what's the major issues here?
1: Sure. So this is a problem mainly in the international space. It does happen a little bit in domestic, and, uh, but I'll explain why it's sort of more international than domestic. And, and, in fact, I'll start with domestic in this answer. The reason why you don't see it happen nearly as much in domestic is that J.B. Hunt has its own chassis. J.B. Hunt container moves on a train and gets put on a J.B. Hunt chassis and a J.B. Hunt truck. Schneider move loads loads onto a train, gets to its destination, goes onto a Schneider chassis. Schneider truck moves to its destination. Very simple, very seamless. You don't run into chassis problems. That's not how it works in the international world. And so there are these alliances that, without going too far into history, ocean carriers used to control the chassis. They own chassis, they provision chassis. It was the big international lines. That 10, 15 years ago went away and they moved to third party companies that work with the ocean carriers to provide chassis. And so while there are a number of them out there, the big three are track intermodal, DCLI and Flexivan. And so the ocean carriers have contracts that say, and let's pick track as an example, I, as Ocean Carrier X, will give you 10 million TEU worth of business in this upcoming year on your chassis. What kind of deal can you give me on price for that guaranteed book of business? And the reason why that ended up working at the end of the day and and caught on was that shippers are all about cost at the end of the day. And so to the extent that this International ocean carrier can get a great deal on that chassis, and a trucking company doesn't have the leverage to get that type of a deal from a price landed cost perspective. I'll go with that deal the ocean carrier can give me. Now, unfortunately, that created a situation while they were cheaper chassis on a per day basis, very inflexible. Because if I'm a company that locks in a deal with track intermodal, it means that trucker has to take that load on a track chassis. And if track has any problems whatsoever, trucker no way to get that container. Hmm. It creates a very inflexible model. And, and we've seen a lot of that happen over the last two years where the, the truck driver's being handcuffed into using a specific chassis because of alliances with ocean carriers have made it very difficult to get some of those stranded containers out of rail terminals.
0: Now, is that changing? Are there some other models out there that might supplement this or or replace it?
1: So there is a big, big, big fight that's gone on for the last two years between a number of companies in Memphis, ATA and Ocean Carriers. Uh-huh. Over, I don't want to go through the various, so they call it chassis choice, gray pools. Everyone has a different name for it. But there is a model out there that says um, any chassis should be able to be used for any container and there shouldn't be these rules. And so we should set up what's called a gray pool where you just, driver comes in and they get the next available chassis. It doesn't matter whose chassis it is. You use that chassis for the for the container you want, and everything can be used for everything. There are business reasons why there has been pushback from track and DCLI on that model. And without going into too many details, there is a good business case in both directions. And I'm not ready right. to have opinions one way or another. But that has been a movement that has happened for at least the last five years. And maybe we get there. I don't know but it's certainly the gray pool model is something that has been heavily pushed by some trucking companies for quite a while.
0: Cause it reminds me of, you know, pallet exchange. And usually what happens is, you know, you bring your pallet in with goods and you take a pallet from the company you're delivering to, and you get that. And usually you turn it in a brand new pallet and they give you a pile of sticks. And so there's always this question of maintenance about getting, you know, I, I, I taking a container, I give one in, who's checking the maintenance of that. Who's making sure because the trucker will get the ding if they have a safety violation right on the road.
1: So you, Chris, you raised the exactly the the, the point that is at issue in this gray pool versus the existing system. Yeah. So back to to the Hunt and Schneider 53 foot example. J.B. Hunt and Schneider can ma- maintain their own chassis. They
0: own it. Yep,
1: they yep. own it. They want to give a good experience for their customers. Track and DCLI raise a decent point to the extent that their equipment now goes into these great pools, who administers it? Who who handles the maintenance and uh, repairs? And when something goes wrong, who is going to get blamed for it? Because if I have my name on that chassis and it's a crummy piece of equipment because this third party is now controlling maintenance and repairs and not me, I've lost control of my customer service experience, unlike that J.B. Hunt or Schneider in the domestic world. I've lost that control, and it's my name on the chassis. So they're reluctant to go to these great pools because they don't want to be tagged with bad bad equipment on on stuff they no longer control.
0: Do you think that this is contributing to the increase in the use of transloading to get it on a domestic as soon as possible?
1: I think there are many, re- this is one of many reasons, that's the way I put it. Okay. This is one of many reasons why people are going to transloading. It is not the only reason, but yes, I think there are significant headaches out there from shippers having to deal with all of these issues. And when it's a speed to market play, I can tell you for a fact, I've spoken to one apparel shipper who told me throughout 2021 and a good portion of 2022 She'd look at everything that came into the port of LA and Long Beach and say, Uh how soon do I need this? If I have no time requirements, I just deal with all the issues and and use international intermodal because whatever, I'll save costs. It's the lowest cost option. If I need it somewhat quickly, though, I'm going to I'm going to transload that out of that box into a J.B. Hunt container, stick it on a BNSF train in Hobart, take it to Logistics Park, Chicago and Joliet. And I'm, I know I'm going to get that faster because J.B. Hunt controls the entire experience outside of the train portion of it. And we don't have to go through third and fourth parties for certain pieces of equipment. And then, of course, if it really was needed fast, you'd use a team truck in that case. Sure, I think sure. more and more in the future, if there are struggles in the international intermodal world, it creates significant opportunities for J.B. Hunt and Schneider, maybe even Hub Group. To yes, offer transloading as an option, which JB Hunt and Schneider are very much pushing these days, for these frustrated shippers who don't want to deal with the challenges of the 20 and 40 foot world that you don't experience in the 53 foot world.
0: Yeah, and it seems to solve another problem of, of empty containers being in the middle of America, you know, being kind of stranded. How to get them back to the port? But let me let me shift for in the last few minutes we have, and let's talk about trucking because uh, you can't talk about intermodal or cover intermodal without covering trucking, because as we talked earlier, there's trade-offs. So what do you make of this current market that has been inverted since April 2022, where spot rates have been below average contract rates? What do you think is going on, and what do you think is going to happen?
1: I think that from my conversations with shippers, Uh I think they were so spooked by how hot the spot market was in 2021. Right. They put everything they could with their contract carriers, which obviously caused the spot market to fall apart, you know, before even last April, but certainly since last April, uh, but created that inversion. And there is this reluctance that did not exist the last time the cycle happened to put that freight back into the spot market. Shippers I speak to tell me these cycles are just too frequent that they with their trucking companies want to have long-term partnerships so that when capacity gets tight and rates go up, they can say to their trucking partners, I was there for you in your lean times. Now you've got to help me out. Um, I'm speaking to very few shippers right now who are saying, you know, damn to the the J.V. Hunts and Schneiders and Warners of the world and the Night Swifts of the world. I'm going to put it all in the spot market because I think they know that's going to bite them in the backside when this market flips. Therefore, the answer to your question is that inversions persisted that long because people haven't reverted to taking advantage of those low spot rates. And what is going to end up happening is these contracts will get locked into place and reset that inversion back to zero. They're going to get negative you know, six to negative 15%, where we high single digits, low double digits. And so that inversion will correct itself, not so much spot rates going up, but more of the contract rates resetting downward in the 2023 yeah. period. Yeah,
0: you know, we see it at uh, DAT is that we look at the uh, new rate differential. So when we can, because of all, we have, you know, the freight that we have coming in, the data, we can see what rates replaced another contract rate for a specific lane for a specific shipper. And that's flipped negative for, and it's negative low, low double digits for most shippers. But what's interesting about this, typically when something like this happens, carriers will, um, shippers rather, will go out and bid more and increase their carrier base. And that is not happening now. It seems like they're, they're remembering what you said, you know, they remember the pandemic and they're like doubling down on their incumbents and kind of trying to lock in things. And and they they are more like elephants, I think, than carriers, which are more like goldfish. I agree with that.
1: I agree 100%. And again, I speak to, you know, as I said earlier, I speak to a lot of intermodal shippers. But when I say I speak to a lot of intermodal shippers, that means I'm speaking to truckload shippers as well, because they're using both modes of transportation. So I talk to them about everything, not just intermodal. I talk to them about trucking as well. And certainly the common theme among them is the way they approach this is they may open it up to a wider audience, but they go to their core carriers who have been treated them well for a while and have said to them here's what i'm seeing from the larger market some cases they may say you don't have to hit that number just get close other cases they may push for the larger but at the very least they're saying can you get me close to it and if can't if you can you're my partner i want to stick with you i don't want to leave you and i think there's again that elephant memory that if they can get a little bit close to the large market get somewhat of a rate reduction they are not going to quibble over an extra one or two percent reduction as long as they stay with a partner who will treat them right when the cycle turns because everyone knows it will at some point
0: it it, yes it it will they yeah i agree with that um what we have noticed that there there tends to be an increased use of the spot market for certain lanes, which didn't used to be, I used to run bids and people would put out to bid every single lane. They moved any truck on and try to get a contract rate. But people have learned that those rates are paper rates. If you have less than a load a week carrier's is not going to be there for you. They just won't. So I'm seeing more where they're, they, when they go to bid or contract, it's certain types of lanes, the higher volume steady state things in the little ones, they don't bother. Now they're doing API straight to a broker or one of the sophisticated asset based carriers, and they're using spot strategically rather than as a mistake. Are you seeing any of that in your conversations?
1: Yes, I hear that a lot. The most common way it's expressed to me is 80% of our freight moves in 20% of our lanes. And so so the way they they've all, you know, most of them have told it to me is I will put that into a bid and then Those onesies and twosies is the way they'll describe it to me almost universally are things my contract carriers are not interested in. And that's the onesies and twosies, the ones that I'm putting to the spot market right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And that could be upwards of 50 to 60 percent of the lanes. But like you said, very small percentage of the potential volume. Um, Let me ask another question about this same thing. Uh, the, The old adage is you don't fix your roof when it's raining right? And right now, a lot of shippers should hopefully be taking advantage of fixing their routing guide and fixing the way they approach. What are you seeing shippers doing now while the sun is shining, knowing that it's going to start raining at some time, in not, if not in 23, then certainly in 24?
1: Well, I think some shippers are lengthening their routing guides. I just think what they're trying to do is to make sure they have a solid routing guide. I think it really mm-hmm. comes back to Strategic versus transactional shippers, and and no shipper is one hundred percent strategic, one hundred percent transactional. Everybody's somewhere in the middle. To your last right. question, to the extent I'm taking these onesies and twosies and putting them on the spot market, I'm transactional, and that's okay. I think from the strategic point of view, for the eighty percent of freight that's moving in the twenty percent of lanes, the way they're positioning their routing guide is. I want my relationship to be as strong as possible today with my, with my trucking company. I want to make sure that capacity is available for me. If the second half of this year looks much better than the first half. So relationships matter. I want to build those relationships and have a routing guide that reflects the strength of the relationships. And the one other point I just bring up to that is I think there also is more person-to-person contact that's helping to develop these routing guides. I spoke to a shipper a couple months ago who said to me, we had all of our carriers, including Crete was one of their big carriers uh, in our offices to do meet and greets and to talk about next year's 20, you know, 2023 freight and, and what our routing guide will look like. And that was the first time, In 2022, that they had met with that company in person since 2019, 2020, 2021 was virtual, was was on Teams, COVID-19. So I think when I develop a routing guide, it's also the handshakes and the meetings in person that didn't exist for two years because of the pandemic.
0: That makes sense. It's funny because you talk about, you know, a lot of the process is being automated. And some people still talk about bloodless brokerage, right? Where you don't need the robots will do the matching and everything. But everyone I talk to says relationships are stronger than ever, but they're not like they were in, say, the 80s, 90s, where it was dinners, sports tickets and those kind of things. It's how can you solve my problem? So the rela- it's still very much a relational business. And you're right. I'm curious how it's going to change long term because some of the virtual stuff, I can visit 20 clients in a day if I can do it virtual. Being in person, I don't. You know that takes a big, uh, a big investment, especially where a lot of these shippers or carriers are because they're in the middle of nowhere. So I wonder if there's going to be a trade-off between what do I do virtual, what do I do in person?
1: Yeah, I think the answer is that there will be travel, but it won't be as much travel. And so maybe yeah. your top ten percent of your truckload shippers get by volume get the in-person meeting, sure, and then yeah. the rest get teams. But that's no different than like me, like I used to go to, and I may not do this ever again. I used to go to eight to 10 conferences every year, including ours at TPM and inland in, in, in late September. I may never do that again with the advent of teams and the amount of calls I do with with shippers on teams. Yeah, There's not really a need for me to be going to 10 events per year, but it's still important for me to go to TPM and JOC England and maybe one or two other events just to just to have the handshake with some of the big shippers out there that I want to speak to, just that human element—I don't yep, think that will yep. ever go away.
0: Yeah, but I think the uh, the days—and I've done—I'm guilty of this—traveling for two days for a one-hour meeting. I think. Oh those yeah, I don't will... see
1: that happening. Yeah, that's <laughs> not worth it.
0: All right, last question. Last question. Tell me about the Auburn double days. You did play-by-play baseball in two thousand and six. I want to hear your play-by-play voice.
1: They don't exist anymore as a team. So the Auburn, I so as you would see in my my profile, I graduated uh, with a master's from Syracuse University, and so Auburn is a city that's about forty minutes from Syracuse. Uh, they had for years and years and years a single A minor league baseball team that was an affiliate for the most part of the Toronto Blue Jays for most of their time, and so. One year as I was graduating from Syracuse, part of the program was you have to have experience out in the field before we graduate you. Uh, a lot of people did the TV side. As you know, I'm a radio person, so I never really wanted to do the TV. So my alternative to the TV the TV stations that they offered out of Washington was to do minor league baseball. So Auburn, the Auburn Double Days had a history of hiring people from Syracuse to do it. It was enjoyable covering the games and doing play-by-play of the games. It was a pain in the toches, (laughs) to use a Yiddish term, all of the other stuff. And so for anyone who ever thinks of, oh, how how glamorous it is to be a play-by-play broadcaster, that's true if you're in the Major League Baseball or the NFL or the NBA. When you're working the minors... You particularly the lower miners, single A. You, you're you're a broadcaster for a couple hours a day, but you're also doing grounds crew work. You're doing <laughs> programs. I mean, you're doing so many other menial jobs. You really, really have to love it. And by the way, it's also a long day and many days because you have maybe a day off per week at most. Right. You're playing games six out of seven days, so you're working six day weeks. You're working twelve hour days six days a week. That's a lot. You really gotta love it to be able to do minor league broadcasting.
0: That's not your second career. Go back and be do play by play, maybe for the Mets. You're gonna be, do that. I see a bunch of I see Mr. Met behind you. And all the Mets paraphernalia. Well, they
1: do have an opening right now for their radio uh, play-by-play person because he left to take the TV job with the Anaheim or the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. So there is an open position, but of course, I don't have a resume that would do that. But yes, you you have to go through to get to that level. You really have to go through a lot of menial work and a lot of stuff outside sales, a lot of sales work just to get to that really glamorous position.
0: Yeah, okay. so we won't we won't be looking for you to do that anytime soon. Ari, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Happy to do it. Great. Okay, everyone, please stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Enon EU.
2: Welcome to the Over-the-Road Truckload Market Update for January 26, 2023. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with Dry Van. Active rates are down 1%, spot rates up 2%, and replacement rates negative 4%. This means the new contract rates are about 4% below the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are down 2%, spot rates down half a percent, and replacement rates negative 13%. On the intermodal side, active rates down 1%, spot rates down 1.5%, and, and replacement rates negative 2%. Finally, on the flatbed, active rates are down 1%, spot rates up half a percent, and replacement rates negative 2%.
0: So I think this is the last... I'm trying to look at the last time, Enam, but... um this is the first time in a long time that active rates for all four modes went down, which we thought would happen eventually. Down one percent for drive in two percent for temp control, one percent for intermodal, and one percent for flatbed. And then spot rates are kind of bouncing up and down a little bit. What do you think is causing this?
2: Yeah, I think the the first thing is it is down compared to a couple of weeks ago, where we did see a slight increase. So. I think that this is coming to where the, the, the contract rates are actually holding on to the, the rates that are the new rates that are coming in, which is uh, the effect of all the spot market being this low as compared to the contract rates.
0: Yeah. And a lot of the replacement rates are negative across the board, although not as much as they were for drive in at least uh, at the end of December. So down four percent compared to uh, last update, they were down almost double digits, eleven percent. But it seems like the, the the replacement rates are going to continue to be negative for the next couple of weeks. You think next month or so?
2: I believe so. I think anecdotally, from what we are hearing, all the Q4 bids, Q4 2022 bids are going to be, you know, active in January, early February. Uh, so uh, from every every signs we are getting, it's going to be negative.
0: And then the market is still inverted. So Ever since April of 2022, it looks like spot rates are still below contract rates. What's the gap we're seeing these days?
2: As of, as of this week, we are seeing the, on the dry van side uh, contracts about uh, $0.22 cents above spot rates. And on the, on the reefer side, about $0.28, cents, which is the contract $0.28 cents above spot rates. That's,
0: that's quite a drop from previously, isn't it? I guess, nah, I guess it's been roughly the same. It hasn't changed too much since uh, mid December. Um, do you think that's going to close anytime soon?
2: I think it should close, but what 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 we are seeing now is the, at least the gap is not increasing. I think until December we saw like you know the gap continued increase. Now it's it's the gap is kind of holding steady, but I would expect you know in the next next few months for the gap to start closing down.
0: And then fuel bounced up a little bit most recently to about four sixty a gallon. How's that affecting things?
2: Shippers are paying, you know, about fifty six cents, uh, fifty seven cents on the fuel surcharge. Uh, this is for the non zero peg people. Uh, if mm-hmm. it's zero peg, then it'll shift about twenty cents additional. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any last any last thoughts on the market? Still, uh, still definitely a shippers market out right now. A buyer's market what do you think that is going to change over the next couple of months
2: i think the the with the spike uh, in our last update there was a little concern to see that you know it, uh, things are going to shift dramatically however f- you know from the from the data that we are seeing it, it seems to be more of a is a seasonal thing or a you know it's not something that's going to hold uh, right. you know to turn the turn the market around but of course, it is time for the market to turn around, at least from a spot market perspective.
0: Yeah. So we'll see how, how long it takes to recover. There's still a lot of open questions as far as inflation. is. Will a recession actually happen? How quickly will new supply come? So we'll see how that unfolds in the new year. So I guess this concludes uh, this week's Truckload Market Update. Thanks,
1: Enam. Thank you.
0: Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Enam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.capless@dat.com. at dat.com finally, from all of us at the Vine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.